Well, what I like to do again with this passage of scripture is I want to, as I said before, set before you the reasons why the Apostle Paul calls us to this great thanksgiving, this giving of thanks to God the Father. And as I said before, uh, it's interesting that this passage of scripture occurs within uh, this opening prayer of the Apostle Paul for the church at Colossae. And this opening prayer, it's really a wonderful prayer. When you take a look at it, the prayer is really focused on the fact that the Apostle Paul desires for the church then, and we can say for our churches now, that each and every one of us would be filled with the knowledge of the will of God. This, again, all surrounds the the written scripture, the word of God, and the word of God being so important in your living out the Christian life. He also prays that that we might be strengthened with all might. This is a reference to the work of the Spirit of God within us. And so we would say that when we, if we were to sum up this prayer of the Apostle Paul, his prayer is that we might be, again, strengthened by way of the work of the Spirit and be informed by way of the written Word of God. And so these two things coming together enable us, again, to live a life that is pleasing to God. But where I want our attention to be particularly drawn today is, as I said before, on that 12th verse. And in this 12th verse, we're going to see basically three things. We're going to see, number one, the thanksgiving that the Apostle Paul offers up to God the Father. Secondly, we're going to see this this very interesting word. The King James says that God has made us fit. Your translations, your newer translations may use a word something like this, that he has qualified us. And we're going to see what it is to be qualified uh, in the sense that this passage of Scripture is speaking of. But the third thing we're going to see here is this qualification, this fitness, if I can say it that way, all surrounds the idea of you and I being now participants with the saints in light. And so what we're going to see is that there is a, a qualification that God gives, if I can use the word here, objectively. It's a grace that's conferred. But not only is this qualification, a grace that's conferred or given, we're going to see that this qualification has inward characteristics whereby there is a true transformation of our lives. So that when you and I are participants with the saints in light, there's no uncomfortableness about it. I don't know if you I don't know if you've ever thought about the strange reality that it would be that if in some way, shape, or form God was going to take you to heaven and you ended up in heaven really not wanting to be there. Well, I can assure you that's not going to happen. All those whom God determines or destines for heaven, he works within them a desire to be in heaven. And this is something that we are to use as an evaluation in our life here and now. Do you long for the holiness that marks God and his people? I hope you do. Because when we come to this idea, this realization that we are, again, the people of God, we're saved from our sins. Again, all the condemnation and all the wrath that is due us because of our sins has been done away. But God does more than just that. He not only works within us, again, I'm sorry, he not only gives to us a a right or a title to heaven, he works within us a desire to be in heaven. And I would ask you to use that something as an evaluating proposition in your mind today. Do you desire the holiness that marks heaven? Do you desire to be with the people of God? Yes, the people of God who in this passage of scripture are referred to as the saints in light. It's a moral category that's being referred to here. Again, it's not just enough to escape the pains of hell. When when salvation is truly worked in the life, not only is there this joy that the pains of hell are escaped, there's a delight that there will be throughout eternity, 
a participation in that moral quality that marks God that we know as holiness. And so we're going to see in this passage of Scripture a qualifying work. We're going to see in this passage of Scripture a transformative work. But also we're going to see in this passage of Scripture the expression of thanks by way of the people of God. And it's going to be this expression of thanks that's going to lead us to the table. You see, again, the word that the Apostle Paul uses in this passage in Colossians chapter 1 is that word that we get. It's a theological word in our day or in our setting. That's the word for Eucharist. Now, again, I know sometimes the word Eucharist has, a, has more of a formal or liturgical uh, meaning that we're used to, and I'm not using it so much in that, uh, in that highly developed theological sense, but I am using it in, in the sense that the word Eucharist means to give thanks. And so when the Apostle Paul gives thanks to the Father, we're going to use this as an opportunity, as an open door, to come to the table with thanks. And so by the grace of God, I hope to work all this before you. Well, you know how I usually approach these passages of Scripture. I try to kind of summarize everything in the one uh, sentence or the, or the one proposition. And the proposition that I would set before you today concerning this passage of Scripture is the following. That by means of the work, by, by means of the work of the triune God, especially as focused on the work of Christ on the cross, sinners are qualified or made fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. In other words, God is doing something upon us and God is doing something in us that we might be qualified to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints of light. Well, what I want to do is I want to work through this passage of Scripture and bring out that very emphasis about this idea of God qualifying us. And the way we're going to do it, I'm going to change the, uh, the flow of the passage a little bit. I always do that with hesitancy, but I do want to save the, the, the point of thanksgiving to the last so that we can use it as an introduction to the table. And if you look at verse 12, again, the first thing that's mentioned is thanksgiving. But the first thing I want to emphasize in our sermon will be the fact of God qualifying us, the fact that we are qualified to be partakers of the inheritance with the saints in light. The second thing I want to do is I want to bring out how in this passage of Scripture, it's not only an objective qualifying work or a qualification that's conferred upon us, But I also want to show to you that it's a transformative work. That there's a real moral, spiritual transformation that takes place in the souls of the people of God. And it's that transformation in one sense that makes us suitable for heaven. It's this idea that that God doesn't bring anybody to heaven that he doesn't create a a desire to want to be there. You see, again, one of the things that mark the people of God is that they long to be with their Heavenly Father. They long to be with their Savior. They say say with the psalmist, who who have I in heaven but thee? It's it's God, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ that the people of God desire to see this blessed fact of the sight and the vision of God. And so again, the next thing, the second thing is that transformative work. And then the third thing we'll see is the fact uh, that we give thanks. The church of Jesus Christ gives, gives thanks. Well, again, as I said, let's take a look at the first point that I want to develop here with you today. Verse 12, again, of Colossians chapter 1. Giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Well, again, you, I've already mentioned to you the, uh, the fact that this is a prayer that the Apostle Paul is offering up. And it's very interesting that when we look at this passage of Scripture, uh, what we find is something that we may not, at first reading, have caught. And it's this, that this church in Colossae was not founded by the Apostle Paul, but rather this church in Colossae was founded by uh, this man Epaphras. 
Uh, here was a man who was not an apostle. Uh, here was a man who was greatly used of God. Uh, here was a man, again, that uh, while he has some prominence on the pages of Scripture, was not so much as we would say a prominent man, uh, really like in church history. And, and there's a sense in which I have to say that with some qualification because Epaphras, again, was a, was, was a highly respected uh, member of the church. But what I want you to see is this. It's not only through apostles that God worked in history. It was through, can I say it? It was through ordinary believers. It was through men and women, boys and girls, who, who were just caught doing the, the things that God had called them to do. Uh, these individuals who had the work of grace within their heart, and they had to speak about it. And there was this man of Epaphras, and what was he doing? He was preaching the gospel, and a church was founded upon his work. It's a wonderful thing to see. And it reminds us that not every quote-unquote great work has to start with necessarily great men. It starts with small individuals such as you and me. And so again, it encourages us, doesn't it? And so here was Epaphras, and we see this again uh, earlier in the, in the chapter. Uh, if we look at verses 6 through 8, Paul says this. Um, he says this, uh, which is come unto you as it is in all the world. He's speaking of the gospel here, and brings forth fruit as it does also in you since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. Now listen to this, as ye also learned of Epaphras. And what Paul is saying here is this, it was Epaphras that brought the gospel to you. So again, it's kind of an encouraging thing to, uh, to see that. But what Paul quickly does, as I said before, he offers his prayer and he comes to this idea that we are now qualified or made meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Well, this idea of being qualified, what is it? This, this word or, uh, that Paul uses here is a, is a relatively rare word. It only occurs twice in the New Testament. And in both cases, it refers to an activity or an action of God upon an individual that makes him suitable for the task at hand, makes him suitable for the work that needs to be done, qualifies him so that a certain task can be engaged in. And the other, pl the other pl place where we see this, other than Colossians chapter 1, is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 6. And in that passage of scripture, Paul was writing about the fact that God himself had qualified Paul and the other apostles to be ministers of the New Testament, to be ministers of the new covenant. This new covenant that we have in Christ Jesus, this new covenant that is represented for us here on the table, this new covenant that Christ sealed and purchased for us with his blood. The very fact that this new covenant has ministers and those ministers have been enabled or qualified by way of the very work of God. Paul puts it like this in, in 2 Corinthians uh, 3, 6, who hath also made us able ministers of the New Testament. And the point that he's referring to is this. This was not something that he worked up in himself. We oftentimes speak about Paul as being a very uniquely, uh, 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 a very uniquely uh, uh, qualified man by way of his own uh, kind of human uh, uh, achievements. Uh, here was this man, a man of uh, uh, at least uh, two worlds. He was, a, he was a man of the Greek world, a, a man of the, uh, of, the, of, of, the, of the Jewish world. He was a Roman citizen as well. And that's why oftentimes they say he was a man of three worlds, so to speak. He was very qualified to do this uh, this work of an apostle. But when all was said and done, Paul wasn't saying, well, you know, uh, somebody had to do this work and I figured I was the best guy qualified for it. He doesn't say that. He says, no, God himself qualified me for this work. And so again, what you're seeing here is this action, this activity of God upon individual souls. 
And in this passage of scripture in Colossians chapter 1, what that action and activity is upon you is that he's qualified you. He has made you fit. He has made you meet to be part- a partaker with the saints in the inheritance of life, with the inheritance of the saints in light. It's a wonderful thought here. And so the idea here is, as I said, to be qualified. Uh, some definitions in the word uh, uh, concerning the, the word go like this, that this word here means to be adequately and competently made or empowered by the maker. So God is the maker here, and he is the one who is empowering us in a competent fashion. This word occurs in the ancient world, uh, in the ancient world of uh, Greek literature. And there's a, there was a, a document this, uh, that was discovered that used this word uh, that Paul is using here uh, to be qualified. And the ancient document says this. It was a legal document and says this. If accounts are demanded, consider that you have full powers until my arrival. Full powers until my arrival. It's something that we would call in our day power of attorney. And so there's this idea that believers have been qualified by God to do all things necessary for the participation and the enjoyment of heaven itself. And here is, again, God doing these things. Now, what's interesting is that whenever we think of any form of qualification, any form of, of the work of God for us, any, any, any idea of a blessing that comes to us from God, We, as Christians, reflexively and properly think of the Lord Jesus Christ. We think of the great work of Christ on our behalf. And you stop and think of how many aspects of the work of Christ, and if I can say it this way again, are are objective. And what I mean by objective, I mean they're, they're there. We are brought to them. It's the things that God is doing for us. So that when we think of the one of the great, if not the greatest, uh, of the of, of the of the aspects of salvation, that work of justification, you remember what justification is. Remember we've said this; it's a legal term, has to do with our standing before God as the Judge of all the earth. And in justification, what is God doing? Yes, we know He pardons our sins and He accepts us as righteous, but He does that in a way whereby He makes a declaration upon us. He He renders a verdict. And what's interesting in the concept of justification, the truth of justification, is that that rendering of a verdict isn't based on anything that we've done. But rather it's based on somebody standing in our place. It's based on somebody taking up for us the debt that we couldn't pay. And therefore, when the Lord Jesus Christ stands in our place before the justice of God... God is now able to make a verdict or a declaration on your soul. And and as I said before, it's objective. It's, It's what's done for you. But in the work of the gospel, God is not only doing objective, or God is not only providing objective blessings in the gospel, he is working internally in us as well. And we're going to develop that when we get to the next point. But whenever we think of, again, anything that we receive by way of a blessing, we reflexively think of Christ. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. We ought to be thinking that way. But I find it very interesting that in this passage of Scripture, that's not where Paul goes, if I can say it that way. But rather, where Paul goes in his thanksgiving is that his thanksgiving is directed to the Father. And I find this interesting. And I find it interesting for a number of reasons. Secondary reasons first. He's not excluding the work of the Son or the work of the Spirit. We're going to get to that. But when Paul emphasizes the Father, I'm convinced that Paul is, in a sense, drawing our minds 
not only to the saving activities of Christ in time, he's drawing our minds to the great saving purposes of God in eternity. You see, because when we understand the work of the triune God, remember we opened up with our proposition it's the, through the work of the triune God. Whenever we speak about the, the work of the triune God and our salvation, we, we know and we should understand, we should know, we, we understand that there were specific tasks, if we can say it that way, that each member of the God had carried out. And in the, and in the working out of salvation, what we find over and over again is that in, 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 in bringing salvation, it is the Father who plans and who ordains not only whatsoever shall come to pass, but who, who plans and or, who ordains the very means of salvation and the application of salvation. So that when, the, when Paul says giving thanks to the Father, he's giving thanks to God's eternal decree to save sinners like you and me. That God's plan to save was not a secondary plan that came up after the fact. That God in eternity past determined to bring glory to himself by bringing a people to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, and that people that he would bring to himself would be the church and the church would be the bride of Christ. And Paul was rejoicing in this. He says, I, th- I give thanks to God the Father for his great work and, and determining to bring all these things to pass. And so when the Apostle Paul uh, draws our attention to the Father, as I said before, I'm convinced he's, he's drawing our mind not only to the work of Christ in time, he's drawing our mind to the work of the eternal Godhead in, in eternity past. And there are so many passages of Scripture that bring out this element of salvation. I think of a passage of Scripture like 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Uh, Paul writes this, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. And Paul's taken up with this thought. And he says, we're going, to give, we're going to give thanks to God for this very thing. That when I think upon my own estate, and when I think of who I am, and I think of all the challenges there are between here and heaven, if I can put it that way, and all the things that can go wrong, and all the things that I can mess up, Paul is saying, I give thanks to the Father for this determination to save a people. And oh, by the way, it's, it's humbling to say it, but I'm one of those people that God has determined to save. I look within myself and I say, why? Well, it's not because of anything in me. <laughs> I, I had a laugh. I, I heard a friend of mine saying he had read something. He says, he says I, he said it was, uh, and I may have quoted this a few weeks back, but he said he was reading where an elderly woman said, she said, I know that God had to save me before I was ever, he had to, had to determine to save me before I was ever born. She says, because certainly after I was born, there was no reason to save me. Here was, here was a woman who knew herself. And may we all know ourselves in that way. God's determination to save, again, found that in eternity past. Uh, 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 we read in Acts chapter 15, verse 18, one of these large and grand uh, uh, passages on the, on, the, on the, if I can say it this way, on the perspective that God has. Uh, we see this, Acts 15, verse 18. Known unto God are all of his works from the beginning of the world. You see, none of these things catching God by surprise. God is determined. God knows these things. And so what we're looking at here then is what is sometimes called the eternal covenant of redemption, whereby in eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit determined to bring glory to themselves or to bring glory to God through the saving of a specific people. And in that determination, the Father planned, the Son agreed 
to do all things necessary to save you and me. And the Spirit of God makes application of the work of Christ to our souls. And so again, you have these great promises that were made in eternity past. It's a wonderful concept when we think about the work of God on our behalf. And so again, this becomes a very, very central theme in our understanding of the big picture of what salvation is all about. It is God in eternity past determining to save a people through the work of His Son and applied specifically to individual sinners through faith in Jesus Christ by way of the work of the Spirit. Well, here I am mentioning faith in Jesus Christ once again. And I can't mention it without pressing you on this matter. My friends, I believe every, my, my friends, my brothers and sisters, is this idea of faith in Christ genuinely yours? Is it something that you only hear on a Sunday? And Oh yeah, that's kind of like the religious talk that those people use. Or is this thing yours? We talked about this last, last, uh, last uh, Lord's Day evening and made mention of it again in the, in the beginning of the sermon last week. That, that great statement of Paul in Galatians, Christ loved me, or the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. You see, in this idea, this whole idea of Christ dying for sinners, does that apply to you in a saving way? Oh, you see, I implore you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, call upon this one who is merciful to sinners. Call upon this one who will never turn a sinner away. Call upon this one who is determined to save sinners. You see, this idea then, this eternal counsel goes back, as I said before, to eternity past. And it is, again, that great activity of the triune God, not only securing salvation, but bringing it home to the hearts of each and every one of his people, to the glory of his name. Now, it's interesting, as I said before, uh, this emphasis on giving thanks to the Father no, in no way draws any, any attention away from the work of the Son. As a matter of fact, these things all work together, to, together in, a, in, a, in a perfect and glorious harmony. Uh, there is no disruption here. You have a wonderful harmony, not only of God's attributes in bringing about salvation, you have a harmony in all of God's activity, whether it's the planning of the Father the work of the Son and dying for sinners, or the application of that work in the hearts of individual uh, sinners uh, through the Spirit of God, all work together. And it's interesting to see how many times these big pictures of God's saving purposes come to our attention in the Scripture. I think sometimes we don't really catch it, but they're there all over the place. Uh, Rick read, read, read one of them uh, this morning from Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 4. The passage said this, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Oh, do you understand your life is more than just a short span that you've lived on this earth? Your life in the mind of God goes back to, to his eternal purposes. I remember my former pastor used to say that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he had your name on his heart. You see this, this specific action that, God, that the Lord Jesus Christ is carrying out for specific sinners. And your name was there. And you say, well, was my name there? I don't read it in the Bible. My, my name's not in the Bible. Well, let me say this. Your name may be, not, not, might not be in there, but the description of who you are is there. Christ died for sinners. You see, this is the great, this is the great battle sometimes. Individuals don't see themselves as sinners, and they, th they think that they don't need the saving work of Jesus Christ. But let, it, let every and any sinner say, well, that's me. And this Lord Jesus Christ, he saves Revelation chapter 13, 8, that great passage, we, we oftentimes uh, uh, quote, uh, again, Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain from the, from the foundation of the earth. Again, this idea that even before time, uh, there was a work of God that was being planned. 
First uh, Peter chapter one, verses uh, 18 through 20, and particularly verse 20, uh, Peter says this, who was verily foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Did you notice in every three of those passages, it was before the foundation of the world? There was an eternal plan that the Father determined, and the Father was bringing the past in time when Jesus Christ died on the cross. And so what's interesting to see is how all these things come together. As I said before, the Father plans. The Father had a, had a, had a will that had to be done. He had, a, he had a work for the Son to accomplish. And when the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world, do you remember what he said in, uh, in John 17? Father, I have finished the work that thou gavest me to do. Do you remember that? You remember when the Lord Jesus Christ uh, speaks about this, uh, when, I'm sorry, when the scripture speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ there in Hebrews uh, chapter 10, what does it say? Uh, in, in the volume of the book, it is written of me, I have come to do thy will. And so you see, when you see these passages, it's referencing the fact that Jesus Christ has taken up the work of God the Father on your behalf. He was given a task to do, and he was going to accomplish that task. And nobody would, turn his, nobody would turn him from it. You remember in the, past, in the Gospels when he, when he set his face as a flint to Jerusalem? Nobody was turning him away from bringing you to an eternal salvation with God the Father. This is why Paul says, giving thanks to God the Father. And when we think of not only the work of the Father and the work of the Son, but when we think of the work of the Spirit, it's so wonderful to see. We oftentimes, again, rightly so, make emphasis on the personal application of, uh, of the saving work of Christ by the Spirit to our souls. But do you know that the Spirit of God had a very active role in the obedience of Jesus Christ? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot unto God. Oh, you see, there was, even in that passage of Scripture, in that little span, we have, we have the triune God planning, determining, working out, bringing the past. And so when the Apostle Paul says, again, giving thanks to God the Father, he's saying, listen, you and I are qualified for this great blessing because of what the Father has decreed in eternity and because of what he is bringing the past in time when the Lord Jesus Christ died for his people. That's why in verse 13, he gets very quickly, he gets very quickly to the work of Christ. Notice what we have here. Verse 13, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. And so here you see again this kingdom. And remember, there we are in the gospel of Mark. And what are we talking about over and over again? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is breaking in. Darkness has no, has no authority over it. Every aspect, of, every, every aspect of sin is introduced into the world. Christ and his kingdom is overturning. Now, there, is, there are people that, again, that are, that, 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 that are in need of healing. Jesus heals them. There are people who are oppressed by the devil. Jesus releases them. There are people, again, who are weighed down by their sin. Jesus forgives them of them. Every element of sin, every, every element of, 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 of hardship and misery that sin has introduced is overturned in the kingdom of God by Jesus Christ. And so we've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and translated us into, and he's translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. So there we have the idea of qualification. And it is the Father who has qualified us to be meet, to be partakers with the saints in the inheritance and light. Well, that was the first thing that I wanted you to see. The second thing I want you to see, and I think this is very important to the text, is that Paul is not only talking about an outward qualification that is conferred upon you, uh, what, how can I illustrate this better? Um, you know, maybe maybe you've joined, you know, a, a certain... I remember when I was a young boy, I 
joined the, the, the my mom and dad put me in the Boy Scouts, you know, was it the Boy, the Cub Scouts, I'm sorry, the Cub Scouts. And, uh, you know, I came home one day and I had this little blue uniform and a little blue cap and I was in a, in a, in a neckerchief or I think it was red or whatever it was and there I was, I was, I was fitted out, I guess I was a, I was a Cub Scout now. Uh, but there's more than just the conferring. Something internally is happening in salvation as well. And it's very interesting that when you read some commentators on this passage of Scripture, how that some commentators will kind of congregate around the idea either of the, of the objective work or they'll congregate around the idea of the transformative work. It's very interesting to see the contrast uh, in studying out this passage of Scripture. A gentleman by the name of Thomas Chalmers, I believe uh, from the mid-19th century, has a, has a sermon on this text. And, and I'm reading his sermon, and I'm writing next to the sermon. Boy, I say, you know, you're running close to the line here. You've got to be careful. I don't know where you're going with this. I don't think this is good. And he was emphasizing over and over the transformative work that this passage of Scripture is trying to emphasize. And I was, then I was reading and listening to a sermon by, by John MacArthur, and John MacArthur was emphasizing the objective work here and the idea of, sanct, uh, I'm sorry, the idea of justification and the idea that we are given a particular position in Christ. And what's interesting is that I, I really genuinely think that while in the primary sense, I think we have to focus on the objective reality there, the conferring thing, the conferring idea, I don't think that this passage of Scripture is without its transformative element. And what leads me to say that is not only the nature of salvation as a whole, but what leads me to say that is the type of inheritance that we're given. We are given a portion or an allotment with the saints in light. And when we talk about the saints in light, we're immediately brought to an idea that reminds us of God, of all of God's characteristics as holy. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Again, the kingdom of, that translated us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And I think what the passage of scripture is leading us to, and I think what Paul's intention here is this, is to bring out this idea once again that when God saves us, he creates within us this longing for the very thing for which we are destined. We're destined for heaven. It would be a strange salvation if one day you, were, you found out that you were saved from your sins and woke up in a place where you didn't want to be. What kind of salvation would that be? Yes, you were saved from your sins, but oh, you, you ended up in heaven. And there was nothing about heaven that was particularly appealing to you. And you would say, well, that would never be. Well, did you ever find things about the church of Jesus Christ that were not particularly appealing to you? The fact that really when it's all said and done, there's nothing more beautiful in this life to offer glory and praise and worship to God Almighty. You might think, well, that's, that's nice. I don't know if it's the best thing in the world. And, and you talk to somebody and they say to you, oh, yes, it is. Oh, that you would know what it is to, to truly worship this God. To know what it is to have the full work of the Spirit of God upon you. To know what it is to have the soul and, and, and the heart and the affections taken up for Jesus Christ. To know what it is to live in a moment in time whereby you know without question that this is what God has called you to do in that moment. That's all what a little bit of heaven on earth seems like. And so what I'm saying to you is this. I do believe that this passage of Scripture has a transformative element to it. 
And it's speaking about the fact that when God is qualifying us, when God is fitting us out, he's doing a moral work or a spiritual work within us as well. I've said it like this, that in salvation, God works within us a moral fitness or a likeness to Christ that while it is never perfect in this life is the effect of the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. It's never perfect. We're never as, as holy as we long to be. We're never as, light, as much as like Christ as we hope to be. But this is something that we see going on throughout our days. And if we don't see it, it should cause some real questions to occur in our lives. And if we have no longing for it to happen, oh, this is, this is disastrous. And so again, here I am at one of these places where I have to press upon you the claims of the scripture here. I hope and I pray that you desire to be like Christ in this world. I really do. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not wishing upon you a hardship. I'm not wishing upon you any kind of difficulty. And sometimes it's difficult to take a stand for Christ, is it not? I just saw in the news this past week, some, some old gentleman was on the subway uh, preaching the gospel. And a woman took great offense with him and assaulted him for it. And was, was cursing him and cursing God. But there he was, staying faithful. And so again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not asking you to, to love all this kind of hardship that may come upon you, but I am asking you that, oh, that God will work within your heart and soul a desire to be like Christ as much as humanly possible in this world. You see, the Spirit works these things within us. This idea of this transformative, uh, of, the, of the transforming effect of the gospel can't be stressed enough. And again, I've put it in another way like this, so that we can say that no person is ever destined for heaven who does not desire to be in heaven. No person ever desires to go to a holy place unless there is some affection for holiness. Does holiness appeal to you? I hope that it does. I think of that passage of Scripture, Psalm 29. Oftentimes we use it as a call to worship. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Is there an appeal of that thought in your mind? Is, do, do the very words sound uh, comforting to you? Do the very words draw you away from this world and to think that it's possible for a, sinner, for a sinner like me to somehow in some way through the work of God to be able to come to God and to worship Him in the beauty of holiness? Well, may God make it so. And so again, this is, why, uh, this is why an evaluation here and now of your inner desires is so important. All those who participate in the qualifying work of Christ also participate in the sanctifying work of the Spirit, which creates in us a suitableness to participate in the inheritance of the saints and light. Maybe we can illustrate it another way. We, we hear these stories of, of, of men and maybe sometimes women who work as miners and who are trapped underground for long periods of time. And uh, there they are, no light, trapped in darkness for days on end. And they, they're rescued. And they come out of the, of, the, of the cave, their tunnel that they're in. But what's one of the things that they really can't do right off the bat? The light, again, is something they have to get acclimated to. And there's that time of acclimation where the light becomes not something that's going to hurt them. And I think in very much the same way what God is doing with us in this world. He is acclimating us to heaven. Is that what your life looks like? I hope and I pray that it does. I hope and I pray that it does. And listen, this is why Paul goes on to say, not only of the fact that, that the Father has qualified us, not only of the fact that the Father is working transformation in us, but now we come back to the beginning of the verse. And notice what we have here again in the, in the, in the beginning of the verse. Giving thanks unto the Father. Giving thanks. Now, it's very, very interesting. Here we are uh, again in our day in which we observe the Lord's Supper. And Paul was talking about this giving of thanks. Well, again, this giving of thanks is always on the lips of the Apostle Paul, is it not? It ought to be. 
We think of a great passage of scripture like uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15, when the Apostle Paul says this, Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. And the unspeakable gift, certainly at the, at the very least, is salvation, but maybe even more to the point, it's the person of his son. Yes, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And Paul says, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Now, why is it an unspeakable gift? Because that gift, again, uh, it comes to us by way of great cost. That's why Peter speaks about in 1 Peter chapter 1 once again, and now in verse 19, we looked at verse 20 before, but now in verse 19, you're, you're redeemed. What? How are you redeemed? With the precious blood of the Lamb. The precious blood of the Lamb. Did you ever stop and think that when our Lord Jesus Christ was on the cross and his precious blood was being spilt, shed, given, why was his precious blood being given for our redemption? Why was it? Because he counted your souls more precious than his own blood in that moment. You see Christ giving his blood for you and for me. Oh, the precious blood of the Lamb. And so we come now to this idea of, the, of, of again, giving thanks to the Father. Paul will get to the close of, the, uh, of, the, of this uh, epistle with the same thanksgiving. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. So this idea of giving thanks is very important to the apostle. But when we come down to this word, this giving of thanks, again, it's that word Eucharisto. It's, it's a word that has been taken up theologically to signify the Lord's Supper. Sometimes there's a, there's a development of that theologically that we would not go all the way go along with, but the, but the concept itself, the word itself, and the, giving, and the idea of the giving of thanks is very appropriate to the Lord's table. Matthew Henry has written something on this in a, in a book that he has entitled Preparation for, uh, for Communion. I, I think that's the title of it. Actually, the kind of interesting, the book is, comes down to, to us in our day un, under a couple titles, uh, but it's the idea of, of uh, communion and the preparation for it. And Matthew Henry says this about the idea of thanksgiving here. He says, Though our Savior, when he instituted this ordinance, had a full prospect of his approaching sufferings with all their aggravations, yet he was not thereby indisposed for thanksgiving. And he says this, For praising God is a work that is never out of season. And what Matthew Henry is trying to bring our attention to is this. There was the Lord Jesus Christ on the night in which he was betrayed. And what is he doing? He's having this last supper uh, with his disciples. And, and he's not overwhelmed by the circumstance. Again, we'll see that in the Garden of Gethsemane where, where he's truly crushed and truly weighed down. But there he is now uh, with his disciples. And what is he doing? He's giving thanks to God the Father. Why? Because even in a, in, in a time of approaching suffering, it is, still, it is still proper to give thanks to God. He goes on to say this, he says, he says uh, because we participate uh, in the Lord's Supper, we too ought to give thanks. The sacrifices of acknowledgement of, of us as Christians must, that we must offer daily is the fruit of our lips and giving thanks to his name. And what Matthew Henry is talking about here is not so much our gathering around the table, but in spite of all the ups and downs of life, what are we doing? We're giving thanks to God. That's when praise becomes a sacrifice. You see the difficulty of our circumstances, and yet there you are praising God anyway. It's, true, it's a true sacrifice. And with that sacrifice, if I can take up the words of Scripture, God is well pleased. And so we come then to the table with thanksgiving. And I want to draw your attention to at least three things as to why you and I come to the table with thankfulness. Number one, this table reminds us that we are to be thankful to the Lord Jesus Christ for his death on our behalf. Isn't it an amazing thing that Jesus said 
to his church, essentially there's one thing that I want you to remember about me. We think, one thing? There's so many things. He says, I know, but there's one thing. And what is it that one thing that he wants us to remember? He wants us to remember his death for us. He wants us to remember his dying love. He wants us to remember that we are now qualified to be participants with the inheritance in the saints and light because of the work that he performed for us on the cross. So when we come with thankfulness, we're thankful for the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Secondly, we're thankful that the, that the Lord's Supper represents to us and reminds us of all the blessings that are ours by way of the new covenant. These new covenant blessings, the, the indwelling of the Spirit of God, the writing of the, the law of God on the heart. God, God not only, again, puts His Spirit within you, He also implants within your soul holy desires. And I don't shy away from emphasizing this. I really don't. Because I know from what the scripture says that when I talk about this, these, these holy desires implanted in the soul by way of the work of God's spirit in you, there's a witness there. I know there has. Our desires for holiness might not be all that we would want them to be, there, but they're there. I guarantee you they're there. And if they're not, we need to take a look at where we stand before God himself. And then thirdly, I, I, want, I want us to give thanks. I want us to come to the table with thanks in our heart because because the Lord Jesus Christ intends this table to be a time and a place of, of spiritual nourishment and sustenance. When I was thinking of that this morning as we were driving out, the, the picture came to my mind of that Old Testament episode where you remember Jonathan and Saul and the people of Israel, they were at war. And it was that kind of strange uh, uh, episode where Saul said nobody was to eat anything until the battle was done. And Jonathan didn't hear anything of it. And Jonathan came across this honeycomb and the passage tells us he dipped the end of his rod in the honeycomb and he took it and he was enlightened, it says. He was refreshed. And I thought, isn't that what the table of the Lord does to the people of God as they struggle in this world? This, place is a, this table is a place of spiritual nourishment. Why? Because Christ communes with his people here. The promises of Christ are visibly set before us here. And so my brothers and sisters, at the end of this sermon, what ought we to do? Well, we ought to give thanks to God the Father who has qualified us to be participants with the inheritance of the saints and light.